chapter number 15. I've been trying to get through people's questions. Louie, I'm still working on your questions. Don't think I'm avoiding those questions, but I'm working on them. Louie expects me to be like, I don't even know what he expects. He expects me to go back in time and go see what really happened at, at a couple of events. And so tonight, I thought during this week, it's kind of funny, I was preparing to talk about conviction because I thought that's what Mona's question was all about. But Mona's question was all about commitment. And so I'm like, okay, so I changed last night to commitment. And so why should I be committed to the Lord? Or you could ask these questions. Why are people not committed to the Lord? And there's a lot of different answers you could give to these things. And I'm going to try tonight to answer it the way that Paul would answer it according to the scriptures. Brian of yesteryear would have probably went a little different direction. And, you know, at the end of the day, every Christian should be committed to God. And those that aren't, there's something wrong with them, is my personal opinion. But we're not going to go down that road tonight. We're going to look at what the Bible says and we should be committed to God. We live in a day and age where people are committed to a lot of things, but then when it comes to God and the work of God, who cares about it is what it comes down to with a lot of people. Not all people. Look at this. You're here on a Wednesday night. I don't think that, I think that tonight talking about this topic, I'm preaching to the choir as we talk about this subject tonight. And so, but maybe there's someone watching online, maybe someone here, this will help a little bit further, my honest opinion is, why are people not committed to the Lord? First thing is, I do believe that, uns that saved people can live an uncommitted life to God and not bear fruit. The Bible makes that clear. Um, John chapter 15 talks about that every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. So that does mean there are saved people that are not committed to the Lord and do not bear fruit. I don't believe God's glorified by that. And I don't think any Christian should be striving to live life that way. But we look in our world today, it seems like people are scared of committing to God. Why? I really don't know. My thinking is they really don't know God. Because the more you know God and of him, the more you want to live for him. God doesn't force anyone to do anything that they don't want to do. And we look, people, do, people make commitments to dumb things all the time. How many people will go out and buy a brand new car for $50,000 and pay, you know, you're looking for every $1,000 financed, you're looking at $20 a month is the average. So at $10,000, that's $200. So if you buy a car for $50,000 without much down, you could have a car payment of close to $1,000. Now, if you make tons of money, that might not be a big deal for you. But when you make $1,600 and you're going to spend $1,000 on a car, that's not the smartest thing to do. But people will just sign the line and do it. People are afraid to commit to the things of God, but we commit to things all the time. We commit to contracts. We commit to this or that. And so what I believe is, I believe the problem is people just don't know God well enough and the reality of who he is, and that's why people don't commit to him. 
You say, where do you get that from? I think we could look at it in the book of Romans. Tonight we're going to look at it from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So my knowledge of God and who God is should lead me to be committed to live for him. That's the gist of the message tonight and how it all applies. 1 Corinthians 15, a great passage. We're going to just look at a few verses at the beginning here, then we're going to dive to the end of the chapter. But verse number 3 says, For I delivered unto you first of all that which also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We see the Gospel right there, pure, plain, and simple. The Gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He rose again the third day. He died, he was buried, he rose again. That is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we preach and teach. That is the full gospel. There is no need for nothing else. Now, we go down to the end of the chapter, and we're going to talk tonight about, so why should I be committed to the Lord? I'm going to show you why and what Paul has to say from this passage and some words that he has for us from here. Go down with me to verse number 50, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Verse number 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... Because of what you just read, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Why should I be committed to the Lord? Because of all that he's done for you. We could get even more technical here because we know chapters and verses were added later on. Chapter 16 goes into the collection, the offerings being collected. Why should those things be? Why should we give to God after all he's done for us? It's not something, and this is what you've got to understand tonight. Paul doesn't shame them into doing the work of God. He tells them about how wonderful and all the things that the Lord's done. And he says, because of what God's done, this should be your response to that. I wish sometimes I could take Christians and shake them up and down and try and teach them to be committed to God, but that's not how it works. I need to show people how good God is, and I need to be an example and live and be committed to God. The best testimony you can be to the, your fellow Christians in your church, in your community, is you be committed to God. 
I can't control anybody else but Brian. And even I have a hard time with Brian all the time. Without the Lord, Brian can't control Brian. So we got to take care of ourselves in this area. Let's be committed, follow the Lord, and be a good example to those around us. You know, for me, it's hard to understand. There are, in our day and age that we live today, people feel they're good Christians if they go to church once a month. I don't get it. I don't understand that one. But I'm also, I just need to follow the Lord and be committed myself and be an example to them of what I should do. So tonight, we're going to break down these verses. I'm going to show you some great thoughts from the Lord here, from Paul, from the Lord here. And then we'll look at our response to what the Lord's done and see how or why we should be committed to the Lord. Father, bless the next few minutes that we have tonight. I thank you for it. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for being our God. Bless this time that we have. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 is a wonderful passage. And I really, when I read through the, this chapter from the beginning to the end, it reminds me of uh, Bill Gaither's song, Because He Lives. You know, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And Paul talks about in this passage, if the resurrection didn't happen, we'd be men most miserable at the end of the day. But what we got to understand is because Jesus lives, we have a better life now because of that. Because he lives, we have heaven to look forward to. Because he lives, death doesn't have to have dominion over us. Sin doesn't have to rule in our lives because of what Jesus did and because of all those wonderful things. And so tonight I want to take a couple of minutes, look at these verses, and I want you to know that there's hope for today, for the future, and how we should live today based on the hope that we have going forward. Number one, we see tonight that there is a word of enlightenment here in this passage, a word of enlightenment. There would be a major problem. You look at verse number 50 here. It says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Hey, um, how many of you got blood tonight inside of your body? How many of you got blood in there? We all do. How many of you got flesh on? Guess what? In your flesh and blood, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's now, do you want to know something that's interesting to note? If you were to look at Jesus' glorified body, what's missing from his glorified body? There's no blood. It doesn't talk about blood. You can read, just read, and you can read that for yourself sometime. That's just a thought there. But keep on going, and this is what Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed. All shall be changed. But we shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this moral must put on immortality. And so what Paul is doing here, as we talk about, as we just get going here, He's talking about the difference between our bodies today and what it's going to be like in heaven. And he also talks about unveiling a mystery to us. The word mystery here means the secret counsels or the hidden things of God. And what Paul is talking about, and Paul didn't understand the mystery. A lot of people didn't understand them because it's a mystery, right? 
The mystery has to do with the church. And we'll talk more about that here maybe in a couple of minutes. But as we look here tonight, we see letter A, there is an enlightenment concerning our problem. What verse 50 and verse 53 let us know is that, you've got to understand, we cannot go to heaven like we are. That's the way it works. These bodies are defiled with sin, and they can't enter into heaven. That's what Paul's teaching right here. These bodies are mortal. They're not designed to exist in eternity in the heavenly realm. And if we're going to be in heaven someday, there's got to be a change that takes place from this body today to the body that we'll have someday. That's what he's talking about here. You see, in verse 39 through, or verse 35 through 49, we're told that we're going to get a new body. Isn't that a wonderful thing? How many of you are going to be grateful for that new body someday? Praise God. And I think the older you get, the more grateful you are for that new body someday. And praise God for Praise God for a body that there's no more pain. No more hard time getting up in the morning. No more knee pain, joint pain, back pain. No more COVID. No more breathing problems. What a day it's going to be with that new body, right? And as we think about this, the Bible tells us in, in 1 Corinthians here, 15, look at verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And so there's got to be a change that takes place. And the Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So this is our dilemma. You think about this. In order to get a new body and to be free from this decay, dying, and defiled body, for the most part, people have to die for that to happen. Right? So think about this. We look at death as an awful thing. And losing our loved ones is an awful thing. And the pain that we go through. But death is what leads the way for many to get their glorified body. But then we talk about the mystery, and we'll talk about that here in just a moment. And so as we look at this and we think about this, the first thing is the problem, we can't go the way we are. You can't go to heaven the way you are tonight. Letter B. We see there's an enlightenment concerning his promise. This is where the mystery comes into play. And this is where people, I don't understand how they don't understand it. But what the Bible is talking about, look at verse number 52. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And I skip verse 51 like I wanted to read. Go back to 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's referring to the rapture of the church. I don't know how people can't see that. Not all believers are going to sleep, to die. Not all will sleep, but all will be changed. Do you see that there? So there's a promise right here. And as we look at this and we try to tie it together, this is where the mystery comes into play. 
Paul reveals the mystery is that some of God's children will not die, they'll just be changed, which is referring to the rapture of the church is what it's talking about. And so the Bible says, well, I'll be changed. And look at this, it says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And that event that Paul's talking about is the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse number 16 and 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's what, that's what Paul's talking about right here. We Not all will sleep but we will all be changed. And so we see the rapture right here. And what a day that's going to be. And what a blessing that's going to be. And that mystery is we look at it and you think about the fact this event's going to happen out of nowhere. It says in the twinkling of an eye. A twinkling is the flap of a wing or the buzz of a gnat or the twinkling of a star. You know the blink of an eye is one thirtieth of a second, they say? Is the blink of an eye. And so the twinkle of an eye is one ten thousandth of a second. It's going to happen like that. What a day it's going to be. So Paul begins this, as we finish up this chapter here, there's a word of enlightenment. He lets us know, hey, the, you can't go to heaven the way you are something's got to give, something's got to change. And in fact, not all of you are going to sleep. Not all of you are going to die. But we are all going to be changed. And praise God for that. Now we see, number one, there's a word of enlightenment, but number two, we see there's a word of excitement here now. What's the excitement that we see? Look at verse 54. It says, so when this corruptible, when our think about this, when our corruptible shall I put on incorruption. When this mortal shall I put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us, which giveth us the victory. And Paul goes from talking about, hey, you can't get there in that body that you're in now. Something's got to change. He goes from a word of enlightenment to some excitement. Where does he go with this excitement? We see letter A, there's excitement over our victory. Paul mentions four great enemies that will be defeated in the end. He mentions death. He mentions the grave. He mentions sin and the law. Each of these really is against us today. Death. Death comes for everybody, doesn't it? Sin comes for everybody. The grave? That's, what, what, do we ha what do you have to look forward to at the end of your life? A grave. That's what this world does. There's a lot more to it than that. The law gets victory over us all the time, doesn't it? Any of you sin today? And if you just said, no, I didn't sin today, you probably just lied and sinned. So, yeah, I'm sure we all sin today. And so there's an excitement over our victory. Think about this, number one. Think about death. Death is pictured 
as a fearful monster that has a horrible sting. It's inflicted its pain on many a person for many, many years, thousands of years. People don't like to think about death. But death is stalking each and every one of us every day. Because let's be honest tonight, you are one day closer to death right now than what you were yesterday. And there's nothing you can do to stop that. But you've got to understand something. It's one thing to die, but it's another thing to die in sin. The Bible says here the sting of death. What is the sting of death? It's sin. One day when death comes for a lost person, they will feel the sting of a lifetime of sin, and they'll drop into hell, literally. And in Jesus, death has been defeated. There is no sting in death for the believer. The worst thing that happens to us, think about this, the worst thing here on earth is death, correct? You could, you could have a bad accident and still live. The worst thing that could happen to us here on earth is death. Being with God forever, is that really that bad? Now, think about it this way. Let's say you die in your sin. Then death is the worst thing that ever could happen to you. Because you're bound to eternity in hell. Because the sting of death is sin. And so as we look at this, we think about the fact that because of what Jesus did, we have victory over death. That's why no Christian need to fear death. Now, I would like to go in my sleep. That would be the best way that I'd like to go. You know, I don't want to, uh, car accident, things like that. But you can't control those things. But as a believer, you, have, you should not fear death because you're a child of God. And that day will come, but there's no sting in it because of the fact that Jesus died for us. We see number two, we see the grave. The grave. How many of you like burying a family member? Is there anyone in the room that likes that? You like watching them lower the body down in the casket and put the dirt over it. And Nobody likes the grave. I don't think anybody does. If you do, you've got some issues. You've got to understand something. The grave is the place where weeping happens, where hearts are broken, where we have an empty place. The grave is cruel, but the grave has no power over Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. That's the victory that comes. There's victory over death. There's victory over the grave. Number three, there's victory over sin. Sin defiles us. Sin devastates our lives. It dooms us to hell. Sin separates us from God. It destroys homes. It destroys hearts. It destroys hopes. It's a vile thing that tarnishes every relationship we have and corrupts every area of our life. It's horrible, cruel. But in Jesus Christ, sin has been defeated, and sin has no more dominion over the believer. 
And Paul's talking about there's some excitement in the fact, hey, death has no power over you anymore. Hey, the grave has no power. Sin has no power over you. Number four, the law has no power over you. Because the law is what shows us that we're sinners. It's what shows us our rightful death that we deserve. The law was intended by God to reveal to man that he was a sinner. It's the law that reveals the true nature. The law is not sinful, but the law shows us that we're sinful. And look at what Paul says there in verse 55. And I, th I just picture him shouting this. Oh, death, where's thy sting? Oh, grave, where's thy victory? And tonight you got to understand, church, those that are in Christ, if you're a saved child of God tonight, as we look at this passage right here, the grave has no victory over you. Death has no victory over you. Hey, sin has no victory over you. And the law and the condemnation of the law has no victory over you tonight. Praise God for that. Some of you don't look as excited as I am about it, but there's something to be excited about. But I tell you something, even more than being excited about our victory, we see letter B, we see there's an excitement over the victor. The source of our victory. Where does our victory come from? How, how does sin have no more power over us? How does the grave not have any power over us? How does death have no power? How does the law not have any power over us? Verse 57, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we look here and we think about this, He is the source, not us, not anything in us tonight, but it's in Jesus Christ. When He came to this world, when He lived the perfect life, when He died on the cross, when He rose again from the dead, He defeated the enemy, and now that we're in Him, the sting of death has no sting on us. We're just passing through this world, and Jesus took the penalty for us. A boy crawled up into his mom's lap one hot sun, summer afternoon and was just sitting there. He was loving his mama and she was loving him. And then the little fellow became afraid and the little fellow pulled closer to his mom and the mother said, What's the matter, son? The little boy said, Oh, mom, there's a bumblebee. Look at the bumblebee. It's buzzing all around. That bumblebee is going to sting me. The mom said, son, you don't have to be afraid of that bumblebee. Mom, that bumblebee is going to sting me. It's going to hurt. No, 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 son, that bumblebee will not sting you. You don't have to be afraid. The little boy said, why don't I need to be afraid, mom? Mom reached out her hand and showed her little boy in her hand. In her hand, she pulled a stinger out and said, son, you don't have to be afraid of the bumblebee. That bumblebee already stung your mom, so it can't sting you. I've got the stinger. That's what Jesus did for us. There is no sting in death, in the grave, in sin, or in the law. We see, number one, we see that Jesus defeated death in the grave. And because he did that, he had victory. When the Lamb of God entered death on the cross and rose again three days later, he forever rendered death ineffective. Death has no more power because of what Jesus did. Jesus took the full penalty of death on him for us so that we could live. That's why, Christians, you don't need to fear death. 
in the past year and a half, I've seen a lot of Christians fear. I understand caution. I understand being careful. But as a Christian, you should not fear death. Don't get me wrong. I want to live to be an old man and see my kids grow up. I want to have grandkids. Even great-grandkids would be fun. I'm in no hurry, but there should be no fear in death. Because I know that when I'm absent from this body, I'm going to be present with the Lord. And how wonderful that's going to be. But that happens. You know why that happens? Because Jesus did it. And because we're in him, it's all going to be okay. So we, as we talk about the excitement over the victory, we see that Jesus defeated death in the grave. Number two, we see that Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus came into this world and he perfectly kept the law. No one in the universe from heaven above to hell beneath could have pointed an accusation at Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law and now the Bible tells us in Romans 10 verse number 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Because of that, think about this, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Why is there going to be no judgment? Because Jesus fulfilled it all. So there's an excitement about the victor. He defeated death in the grave. Jesus fulfilled the law. And I love this one. Jesus destroyed sin. Through his death on the cross, he eliminated the power of sin. He delivered all those who receive him from sin's power and sets them free. That's what Romans 6.14 is all about. For sin shall not have dominion, dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Jesus defeated all of our enemies when he died and rose again. And all those who trust him for salvation are eternally free. And that's worth shouting about and getting excited about. So let me review and then let me tell you how we should live based on what we know. We know this, that our bodies, this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We have a dilemma. And we understand that not all are going to sleep, but thank God all will be changed. So if you don't pass away in this life, if you don't go to sleep, and you're taken in the rapture one way or the other, you will be changed. And because of that, what do we know? We know that there's some victory that Jesus got. Death cannot have victory over the Christian. The grave is not the final resting place. Sin does not have to rule and reign. The law does not have to have victory in your life. And we know that Jesus Christ defeated death and the grave. He defeated sin. He fulfilled the law. So because of that, look at the last verse of chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, because of this, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
We see number three, and lastly, we see there's a word of encouragement. Paul encourages us to live a certain way based on what the Lord has done for us and what we've learned about up to this point. What is that? What's the challenge that Paul gives? Letter A, we are encouraged to be firm. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. We're called to make up our minds, to make a stand for the Lord. We're called to be steadfast. That means to sit. It carries the idea of dead weight or being hard to budge. We're to be unmovable, which speaks of something that cannot be moved from its place. That's what Paul says. Let me encourage you, because of what the Lord's done, because of what all these things, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable. Hey, you have something to live for today. After all that the Lord's done for you, he encourages the believer to stay firm. We have a reason to stand, and he's encouraging us to do that. Letter B, we're encouraged to be faithful. Fruitful, sorry, I was going to letter C. We're encouraged to be fruitful. You guys know my notes better than I do. How does that work out that way? Joe's got a fast trigger finger back there. We're encouraged to be fruitful. Look at what it says there. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable. Look at these words here. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. We are to abound, look at that there, in what work? His work. You see that right there? How do we do that? How can we do that? There's two things that we need, two lessons, two valuable lessons. The first one is this. We need to remember it's His work. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's His work. It's not our duty to make it go or to try and guarantee success. It's his work, and he will see his work through. Secondly is if we are to abound in his work, then we must learn to let him live through us. Without me, ye can do nothing. That means we must die to self. That, as Galatians 2.20 tells us, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. John 15 and verse number 5, I am the vine, ye are the branches, he that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. How does a Christian bring forth fruit? What do you need to bring forth fruit? You better learn to abide in Christ. That's what it comes down to. He will help you bear fruit. You cannot bear fruit apart from abiding in Him. Without Him, you can do nothing. You say, why do some Christians not bear fruit? They don't abide in Him. You say, well, how can you not abide in Him if you're in Him? If you're abiding in Him, you're going to bring forth fruit. So if you're not abiding in him, you must not be, you're not going to be bringing forth fruit. It's uh, very obvious to see. It's pretty easy there. As we look at this and we think about this, we're encouraged to be fruitful. 
as we yield to him, as we abide in him, he will be glorified and his work will be done. This leads to letter C, and we're finishing up here. We're encouraged to be faithful. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Always abounding. Sounds like commitment to me, doesn't it? I think that's what he's talking about right here. What's Paul saying? That a life lived for the Lord is always worth it. It is not in vain to live a life for the Lord. Hey, Christian, let me encourage you tonight. It is not in vain to be committed to Christ. It is not in vain to go to church when other people stay home. It's not in vain to tell your neighbors the gospel. It's not in vain to teach a Sunday school class. It's not in vain to help in a vacation Bible school. It's not in vain to sing in the choir. It's not in vain to play the guitar. It's not in vain to do those things for the Lord. It's not. That's what this says. And hey, Christian, the world might not get it, and there's going to be other Christians that don't get it. But for the fact that the Lord has done so much for me, and because of the victory that I have, because of what he's done, then I should just live for him. You see, you can't make anybody just be committed to the Lord. They need to know what he's done and make the choice for themselves. And someday we will all stand before the Lord. We will see those nail prints in his hands and in his feet. And I don't care how committed you are to him. You could be the most committed Christian ever. When we see him, as that song says, we will all say, I wish I had given him more. You cannot outgive God because he's given us everything. But you can sure try to give as much as you can to him and be committed to him. Why are we so committed to a job? Because i got to have money to put on my table, to put food on my table. I would much rather be committed to my Savior who's done so much for me than anything else. Be committed to your job. Be a good testimony. But I'll tell you this. We are committed to a lot of things that at the end of the day mean absolutely nothing. I would rather be committed to Jesus Christ than anything else. And this is the thing. Sometimes I think Christians look around and don't ever get this idea in your head. Well, it's just me. I wonder why no one else is, you know, don't, no, 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 no. Remember, it was Elijah that did that, and there were 7,000 that hadn't bowed the knee yet. They're missing out by not being committed to Christ. It's there. They're missing it. You get to be part of the blessing. You get to do the Lord's work. Don't look and get mad. You know, sometimes you might show up and be like, why didn't, why didn't more people show up to do this? Because it's not, not always going to happen that way. That shouldn't matter to us. We need to stay faithful where we're at. And let's just do what God's called us to do. It's an individual decision. Let's just face it. Some people will commit to the Lord and others will not. 
But someday they will stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. And they'll get their due rewards for what they do. But I'm not worried about them. I try to encourage them. And I try to be, and as a pastor, I can't lord over people. I have to be an example. So I got to be an example of what to do. And because of what the Lord has done for me, I'm going to be committed to him. He's, he gets first in my life. The Lord calls. He's the first phone, um, phone number I'm going to answer. Let's be committed. But let's just remember not everybody's going to be. But truly I believe, truly I believe the more you get to know God, the more you will be committed to him. And I think there are a lot of people that never, their, their relationship never matures enough to get to that point. Because man, the longer I serve him, the sweeter he grows. And there's nothing better than being committed. Let's be committed, let's follow the Lord, let's do our very best because he's done a lot for us.